Okay, thanks for uh, putting up with uh, me not moving ahead in Matthew for another week, but uh, going back and uh, reviewing a psalm that we've looked at actually three years ago, pretty much this month. Uh, We're looking at Psalm 107 this morning, so you can open there in your Bible or the text. The whole text of the psalm is printed there in the bulletin for you. Uh, Psalm 107 is a song about the steadfast love of the Lord. That's a phrase uh, that we see several times in the Psalms. Uh, Lots of Psalms include that refrain, his steadfast love endures forever. Or uh, in a more concise way to translate, which is really only two Hebrew words, um, his love is eternal. His love is eternal. Uh, This Psalm uh, reveals some very significant aspects of God's love as seen in his exile and deliverance of his people. And he tells us in this psalm to consider his love, to meditate on it, to think about it. So uh, before we read, let's just get a brief overview, sort of the structure of the psalm, so we can keep it in mind as we read it. Uh, First, this psalm was probably written after the Jews returned from the Babylonian captivity. Uh, And it's a psalm that's a psalm of thanksgiving and celebration. So the first three verses, one through three, They're an introduction to the themes of this psalm, steadfast love of the Lord. Uh, Then in verses 4 through 32, the bulk of the psalm, there's a series of four short stories about what exile and deliverance have looked like for God's people. Uh, There's a clear pattern to each of these stories. Pattern is this. uh, Some did this, some did that. They suffered. They cried to the Lord. He delivered them from their distress, so let them thank him for his steadfast love. It's a basic pattern we see four times in these stories. And then after that, uh, Psalm, uh, in verses uh, 33 to 42, there's this long consideration of how the Lord works through surprising reversals, things you wouldn't expect, uh, these reversals, and how his love is at work through them. And then in the final verse, uh, verse 43, it's a call to consider, consider these things carefully. Consider how he works. The wise will be able to see in all these things the steadfast love of the Lord. Uh, that means it won't necessarily be obvious on the face of it, right? If we have to work to consider it, and the wise have to attend to these things to understand the steadfast love of the Lord, uh, it's not going to be obvious on the face of it. So it's, it's surprising, it's counterintuitive, but those with spiritual wisdom can see the steadfast love of the Lord in the whole pattern of our exile and deliverance. <clears throat> uh, it takes spiritual wisdom and faith to believe that God's love could be at work, in times of suffering like are described here. So uh, we're going to pray for spiritual wisdom and for faith to believe it. So let's pray, then we'll read the scripture. Father, we pray that you would help us to consider your love. It's not just a matter of being intelligent, being able to understand things that are obvious. Uh, It's a matter of spiritual wisdom. So we ask for that and pray that you'd help us to know your love that surpasses knowledge. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Oh, give thanks to the Lord, for he is good, for his steadfast love endures forever. Let the redeemed of the Lord say so, whom he has redeemed from trouble and gathered in from the lands, from the east and from the west, from the north and from the south. Some wandered in desert wastes, finding no way to a city to dwell in, hungry and thirsty, their soul fainted within them. Then they cried to the Lord in their trouble, and he delivered them from their distress. He led them by a straight way till they reached a city to dwell in. Let them thank the Lord for his steadfast love 
for his wondrous works to the children of man. For he satisfies the longing soul and the hungry soul he fills with good things. Some sat in darkness and in the shadow of death, prisoners in affliction and in irons. For they had rebelled against the words of God and spurned the counsel of the Most High. So he bowed their hearts down with hard labor. They fell down with none to help. Then they cried to the Lord in their trouble, and he delivered them from their distress. He brought them out of darkness and the shadow of death and burst their bonds apart. Let them thank the Lord for his steadfast love, for his wondrous works to the children of man, for he shatters the doors of bronze and cuts in two the bars of iron. Some were fools through their sinful ways, and because of their iniquities suffered affliction. They loathed any kind of food, and they drew near to the gates of death. Then they cried to the Lord in their trouble, and he delivered them from their distress. He sent out his word and healed them and delivered them from their destruction. Let them thank the Lord for his steadfast love, for his wondrous works to the children of man, and let them offer sacrifices of thanksgiving and tell of his deeds in songs of joy. Some went down to the sea in ships doing business on the great waters. They saw the deeds of the Lord, how his, his wondrous works in the deep, for he commanded and raised the stormy wind which lifted up the waves of the sea. They mounted up to heaven and they went down to the depths. Their courage melted away in their evil plight. They reeled and staggered like drunken men and were at their wits' end. Then they cried to the Lord in their trouble, and he delivered them from their distress. He made the storm be still, and the waves of the sea were hushed. Then they were glad that the waters were quiet, and he brought them to their desired haven. Let them thank the Lord for his steadfast love, for his wondrous works to the children of man. Let them extol him in the congregation of the people, and praise him in the assembly of the elders. He turns rivers into a desert, springs of water into thirsty ground a fruitful land into a salty waste because of the evil of its inhabitants. He turns a desert into pools of water, a parched land into springs of water. And there he lets the hungry dwell and they establish a city to live in. They sow fields and plant vineyards and get a fruitful yield. By his blessing, they multiply greatly and he does not let their livestock diminish. When they are diminished and brought low through oppression, evil, and sorrow, He pours contempt on princes and makes them wander in trackless wastes. But he raises up the needy out of affliction and makes their families like flocks. The upright see it and are glad, and all wickedness shuts its mouth. Whoever is wise, let him attend to these things. Let them consider the steadfast love of the Lord. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. So I kind of wish that we could spend just a couple hours looking at this because there's so much going on that we're not going to be able to talk about uh, so many great aspects to each of those stories and the way that God works. But, uh, you know, go home and, you know, you can have this as your homework. Consider the steadfast love of the Lord as you read it in Psalm 103, uh, 107. Uh, but here, so the, the surprising counterintuitive wisdom of the Bible is that God intends... Um, Things like excommunication and exile for the good of his people. They are the workings of his steadfast love. That's what you see uh, writ large, really, in this psalm. The whole story of the Bible is about the deliverance of God's people from exile 
And it's about their return home into God's presence, into restored communion with him and with each other. Upon the first sin that you read about in Genesis 3, God excommunicated humanity. Right? He put us out of fellowship with himself. He locked us out of the house, so to speak. Uh, removed us from the sanctuary of his presence, which was our true home, the home that, uh, for which we were made. He excommunicated us for our sin. And you start to get the picture right there in Genesis 3 that, uh, you know, it's not because God is evil and vindictive that he put us out of the sanctuary, out of the garden. You get the picture that God put us out because he's good, because he loves us, because he wants what is best for us. We needed to be redeemed. We needed to be renewed and delivered from our sin before we could once again really be at home in his presence before we could truly relate to God again. God wouldn't leave us unchanged as sinners. He would bring us to the place where we called upon him for deliverance. God brings us to the place where we will call upon him for deliverance. He'll make us know our need for him, our need for his mercy. He'll cause us, even through things like exile, to call upon his name for salvation. He'll save us from our sins and he'll restore us to true communion with himself. So our exile, think in Genesis 3, the garden, exile of humanity from the sanctuary of God's presence. That exile was for our good. And the way that God would make it good was by not just leaving us in exile, but by coming out of the garden sanctuary himself into the wilderness of the world to meet us in the place of our exile to work his salvation there and to carry us back into the promised land to bring us home in his presence again. So there's clearly a sense in which excommunication and exile is self-inflicted, right? Uh, We're not denying that at all. We bring it upon ourselves through our sin, especially through our lack of repentance. But there's another more important sense that the scriptures reveal. This is not something, some conclusion we would come to on our own. The scriptures reveal it to us it's special revelation that we need God to make known to us, <clears throat> that there's this important sense in which it's God's tool to redeem us, the exile or excommunication. It's God's tool to restore us. It's the working of his steadfast love to us. Excommunication or exile is the working of God's steadfast love to us. The classic passage on that idea uh, in the Bible that makes that clear is in 1 Corinthians 5. Uh, someone in the church in Corinth has been continuing in grievous sin. So Paul instructs the church there to excommunicate him, to put him outside the fellowship of the church. So he says in 1 Corinthians 5, let him who has done this, this sin that he's not repenting from, let him who has done this be removed from among you. When you're assembled in the name of the Lord Jesus, and my spirit is present with the power of our Lord Jesus, you are to deliver this man to Satan. For the destruction of the flesh, so that his spirit may be saved in the day of the Lord. So the sinner has brought this excommunication upon himself, but the purpose of the excommunication is ultimately his salvation. Deliver the sinner into distress, which is language we would find in Psalm 107, so that God may deliver him out of his distress. So it's meant to be this world-shattering wake-up call, finding yourself on the outside, finding yourself outside of communion with God and and his people out in the wilderness of the world. It's meant to renew the sinner in repentance and faith in Jesus Christ so that he'll humble, humble himself, call upon the name of the Lord and be saved and be restored to the communion of the church in the love of Christ. 
So the purpose of excommunication is restoration. That's the purpose. It's a prescription of divine love. It's an exercise of divine love. It's an instrument of salvation. As Hosea says, we hear it uh, frequently in our call to, worship, uh, uh, call to confession of sins. <clears throat> Come, let us return to the Lord, for he has torn us that he may heal us. He has struck us down, and he will bind us up. So he, in our psalm, he scatters to the four winds, right? Uh, north, south, east, and west. So that he may gather and deliver us when we call upon him. He excommunicates so that he may save us. And that, that's a surprising, counterintuitive uh, very difficult thing for sinners to believe. Uh, even, even reformed pastors who are supposed to, you know, get the right answer on this, uh, on the test for ordination. Uh, we profess that church discipline is a mark of the true church. We're, we know church discipline is intended for the keeping and the reclaiming of offended, uh, offending sinners, as we say in our book of church order. <clears throat> uh, even, even reformed pastors, it's hard for us to track with God's steadfast love when it comes to excommunication. Uh, Several years ago, there was a pastor in our presbytery who was under discipline for several charges that were brought against him uh, by people in his church. Um, And this pastor refused to participate in the process of discipline. He eventually stopped corresponding with any of us. And this was a demonstration uh, of a lack of repentance. It was clear that uh, we we were calling him to repent of his sin he wasn't having it. He didn't trust Jesus enough to confess sin and to repent of it. And so uh, it was recommended to the presbytery that he be excommunicated for a uh, big fancy word, contumacy. That's the, that's the word. Basically means stubbornness. I don't know why we don't just say stubbornness. We, we call it contumacy. <clears throat> Official language, I guess. It's a lack of repentance. That's why he's excommunicated. That's, that's really the ground for all excommunication. Not so much the, uh, the sin that a person commits, this, you know, some sin or another, uh, but when he refuses to repent of that sin and refuses to call upon the name of the Lord for mercy. And again, that's the whole point of excommunicating someone is that he would wake up and do that, that he would repent and call on the name of the Lord for mercy and be delivered. So uh, it was recommended to the presbytery that we do that, that we excommunicate this pastor. But the presbytery, uh, we were debating whether to do that. And there were arguments made against his excommunication that went something like this. Basically, you know, we should just delay his excommunication. We should give him a little more time because we love him. We should should not excommunicate him now, uh, even though he's demonstrated a lack of repentance, uh, because we love him. Right? So the assumption of an argument like that is that uh, it's unloving to excommunicate a sinner. That's the assumption of an argument like that, that it's unloving, it's not a feature of love, it's not an exercise or an act of love to excommunicate the sinner. That excommunication or exile is something entirely other than love. It's what you do when all attempts to love have failed and when the sinner is a lost cause and you just have to end it all. Isn't that what excommunication is? Uh, But no, it's a function of God's love. It may be counterintuitive, but it's God's revealed wisdom. It's in the scriptures, many places in the scriptures. Difficult to understand, uh, which is why God calls the wise to attend to it and to consider it. The discipline of the Lord could be called tough love, yeah, but it is love. It's the steadfast love of the Lord that lasts right up to the moment of excommunication and through it and beyond. Because God is the God who scatters 
in order to gather, who sends his people into exile so that they will call upon him for salvation, so that he would go out to them and deliver them and bring them back home into his presence so that they would return with repentance and faith and thanksgiving. So that's the, that's the arc of the whole Bible from beginning to end. That's the storyline that gets repeated over and over again, like it gets repeated four times here in uh, Psalm 107. <clears throat> the Jews, the people of God, had been unrepentant in their sin for centuries, as God was calling them to confess and repent. Uh, God had warned them in Deuteronomy 30 that this would mean their exile, their refusal to repent. Uh, that they would be scattered into the nations, out of their homeland, and finally he brought that about. And that exile was self-inflicted, but God was the one who drove them out. For, as it says in verse 11, they had rebelled against the words of God and spurned the counsel of the Most High. So he bowed their hearts down with hard labor. They fell down with none to help. Then they cried out to the Lord in their trouble, and he delivered them from their distress. So let them thank the Lord for his steadfast love, for his wondrous works to the children of man. So the psalmist isn't just saying, thank the Lord, there's a good ending to your terrible story. The psalmist is saying, thank the Lord for his steadfast love to you in your whole story. For everything he did to bring that whole story about including the part where he sent you into exile, that thing you never would have wanted or chosen for yourself, so that you would learn your need for him, as well as the part where he responded to your cry with deliverance. The fact that God, in his steadfast love, was in his sovereignty behind the suffering of his people in exile is, is impossible to appreciate apart from spiritual wisdom. <clears throat> But it's made clear in, uh, it's made explicit in two of the four episodes in this psalm that God made his people like prisoners sitting in darkness before shining his light upon them and bursting their bonds. And God commanded the storm at sea to bring the sailors to the brink before making the storm still and calming the sea. God drove his people out into places of desperation. God brought them to rock bottom so that they'd call upon him so that, they, so that he would deliver them. The experience of exile uh, might look different for different people, just as different people experience different aspects of exile in Babylon, right? It says in verse 4, some were just plain lost in the desert, <laughs> the wilderness, uh, homeless, right? Driven out of their home until God brought them to a city and made life fruitful for them, gave them people to be able to relate to again. Some, uh, in verse 10, suffered direct oppression, imprisonment, forced labor, more like slaves who needed to be set free. They needed their chains broken and their, the doors opened. Some, uh, verse 17, uh, became self-destructive, like, you know, we get this idea of drug addicts who just shrivel up. They don't take care of themselves. They're checked out of life. Uh, until God restored their sanity through his word by speaking to them so they come to their senses. Some, in verse 23, uh, were, this is a picture of them just living like the rest of the world. Uh, Israelites were not a seafaring people. Uh, those were the Gentiles, and the Gentiles were often, you know, symbolically portrayed in the Bible with language of the sea. So, verses 23 and following, their picture of the Israelites, the Jews, uh, adopting the world's business model for life. 
and uh, doing that until God himself put the fear of God into them and spared their lives and brought them back into his congregation in the assembly of the elders, the specific people of God. So, uh, but, but each of them, whatever circumstances they find themselves in here, <clears throat> whatever version of exile or suffering they face, each of them can thank God for their whole story start to finish, even the miserable parts that no one would have signed up for. In a very real way, we can thank God for letting our lives literally go to hell. Because that's where he meets us. That's where we have no choice but to call upon him for mercy. That's where he saves us from ourselves and brings us home. Our exile sufferings in this world can look like a lot of different things. People wandering in the desert, enslaved, self-medicating, rejecting God's reality, people just doing all right. Living like the world. Sometimes it's acute and formal and someone has been put out of the fellowship of the church. But these are the places God has brought us because he's good, because his steadfast love endures forever, so that he might grab our attention and wake us up, so that he might strip away our false hopes and false gods, so that we would call upon his name, so that he'll deliver us and bring us home, so that we might learn more about him and, and relate to him more deeply. And all of this comes together for us in Jesus. In Jesus, God has come out to meet his people in the wilderness. He literally did that, going out into the wilderness to be baptized by John, to unite himself to his people in his baptism, out in the wilderness, in order to carry them home with him. Jesus suffered God's discipline, which made him our perfect savior, the writer of Hebrews says. At the cross, Jesus was excommunicated. He was exiled. He was cut off entirely. He was cast into the outer darkness. He was made homeless and afflicted so that we would be delivered and restored. He went outside the city, out into the wilderness, and he lost communion with God there in some sense so that we might be brought back into the true communion of the sanctuary where God's people dwell with him. And the author of Hebrews says, whenever you suffer discipline, you are being treated as God treated his own beloved son. You're not just being treated like some outcast reject. You're being treated like like he treats his own beloved son when you suffer discipline. When you suffer the Lord's loving, loving discipline, you're coming to know what it's like for God to be who he is. God the son to be who he is. Because God the Son himself suffered all these things for love's sake. So you're coming to know him in sufferings like his. Your exile and deliverance is an opportunity to come to relate to God himself. His discipline, even the extreme end of it in excommunication, is a tool of his steadfast love. God's love is eternal. It doesn't just mean that his love is without beginning in eternity and without end in eternity. It means that his love is always, in every moment of time, in everything he brings into your life, to bring your life into his life. The triune God always and only ever acts in love. That's his very being. And nothing can separate you from a love like that. As Brian read in our New Testament reading from Romans 8, we can be sure that neither death nor life nor angels, nor rulers, nor things present, nor things to come, nor powers, nor height, nor depth, nor anything else in all creation will be able to separate us from the love of God in Christ Jesus our Lord because his love is eternal. 
<clears throat> it comes to us at every moment, even the moments where it doesn't feel like it. Can you begin to believe that, <clears throat> that nothing will be able to separate you from God's love? It's hard to believe, uh, especially <clears throat> if, um, God forbid, you find yourself the subject of church discipline, uh, the formal kind, right? Because it's painful when someone's calling you to repentance. <clears throat> it feels like an attack. Just like the Jews were attacked by Babylon. Just like Jesus was attacked and crucified. <clears throat> but it's only an attack on your sin. It's only an attack on your flesh, on the part of you that wants autonomy from God. And that part of you needs to be attacked. And actually, that's what <clears throat> Paul says in 1 Corinthians 5. It needs to be delivered up to Satan for the destruction of the flesh, right? So that you can be saved by God's grace as you turn to him and repent and call on him with faith. <clears throat> because God loves you, he'll take you through that process however he sees fit and as he knows best. It would be the easiest thing in the world to interpret that process as God's hostility, as God's cruelty. It would be natural to interpret it that way. <clears throat> but the scriptures say, uh, however difficult, however eviscerating, however world-shattering the process of discipline might feel to you, God means it for your good. So cry out to the Lord in your trouble, and he will deliver you from your distress. Give thanks to the Lord for his good, for his steadfast love endures forever. Thank the Lord for his steadfast love, for his wondrous works. Tell of his deeds and songs of joy. Extol him in the congregation. Whoever is wise, let him attend to these things. Let them consider the steadfast love of the Lord. Amen. Let's pray. <clears throat> Father, we may never be able to plumb the depths of your love but we can believe your love. We can trust your love because of Jesus, even if it's a love that surpasses knowledge and we can't fully understand it. We can trust it. <clears throat> so we thank you for revealing your love to us in him and for the fellowship that we can have with you and with him in his uh, sufferings. Help us to hold fast to your steadfast love and to attend to it always to consider it and meditate on it so that we might be transformed by it in our relationship with you. Help us to encourage one another to attend to your love so that we can live our lives with you by faith together. We pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen.